0: Hello, and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits those failures and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you. So thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new and plan to leave inspired. On today's episode, we build with Matt Brooks. I have known Matt for the last eight years as we both worked at IBM in similar capacities. I've always found Matt to be extremely calm, kind, and genuine. In this episode, I aim to unearth what makes him this way and how others can improve themselves in these areas. We end up discussing Matt's extremely unique family situation, how that impacted him as a child, how important it is to normalize our differences, and how we can better interact with the homeless. He also shares why he was kicked out of the FBI recruitment process. Leading him to a successful career in technology, where he currently works at Google as a data and analytics leader. Enjoy. Super excited to have Matt Brooks on the pod today. We are going to build with Matt Brooks. So, welcome to the pod, sir. Thank you for having me. Longtime listener, first time contributor. Honored to be here. We're happy to have you. And as always, we're going to do some get to know you questions so that the people can get to know Matt Brooks. So we'll start with, would you rather shave your head or shave your eyebrows? How long? Is this a permanent solution? One year. Shave my head.
1: For what reason? As I approach 40, I'm trending in the direction that that might be a realistic possibility in my future anyway. So to have like a one-year trial period, I think I'd have a lot less questions to answer versus like, why do you not have eyebrows but a full head of hair and a beard? So. That, that seems like an easier path for me. Hey,
0: I got the, I'm showing Matt my, I got the receding hairline too, thanks to my dad. So <laughs> we're, we're trending in that direction too. I haven't got to the point where I'm going to shave it yet, but the trial period, that's uh, a that's good reason. Love that. I mean,
1: the fear is maybe it doesn't grow back after the trial period, but my entire family genealogy has like the horseshoe haircut where it's just, you know, They got the sideburns in the back and nothing else, and that's just not a good look. So if I get to that (laughs) point, I'm I'm bicking it anyway.
0: So, (laughs) If you could gift a future child, let's say that you and your wife have a child one day, if you could gift them one character trait, what trait would you gift?
1: Low-hanging fruit, I would say integrity. But I don't know if that's something I would want to gift so much as having them have the experience to earn that badge if that makes sense like I think that would be top of mind top priority and something you'd want to instill in them anyway but if you could just say hey check that box this person has character and integrity straight away I'd go with that
0: I love that you're just digging deep into these questions you're not just (laughs) throwing stuff out there you're going next level I love this I know right, that would you don't you...
1: like quick responses, and I
0: don't want to <laughs> answer flippantly. So <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent. All right, I got two more. <clears throat> You're a huge sports fan, you got a lot of passion for especially Cleveland and Ohio-based sports. Back to gifting. If you could gift one of those teams, whatever team, a championship in their respective sport, which team would you want? to win a national championship or world championship or whatever it is.
1: Uh Cleveland Guardians all day every day. I've been a baseball fan and player my entire life. But that fandom in my family goes back generations. Um my dad, my uncle, I grew up going to games in the 90s in their heyday when they never won one, but came really close a couple times and again in 2016 got their hearts broken by the Cubs. But my grandfather, my grandmother, big fans on both sides of the family. The then Indians last World Series was in 1948. So my dad is 72 years old, born in 1950, and he's never seen them win one. So I think for our family and my peace of mind, like seeing the Cavs win was cool. I'm not a big NBA guy, but like I feel like the city deserved it. But for me, it's the Guardians. I think most of Cleveland would say the Browns.
0: Yeah, I thought you were going Browns Would you rather run a country or run a business? Neither. (laughs) Um,
1: If you gave me a really small country, I would take country. And if you gave me an established business, I would take business. I know that I'm not answering your question in this case. I was a political science minor I enjoy the theory of politics. I don't particularly enjoy politicians. So running a country is intimidating. Business, I don't really have an entrepreneurial spirit spirit in the way that some folks do. Like, I love growing things. I love improving businesses. I love finding process efficiency, driving top line revenue, cutting costs, optimization, all that stuff. But I'm not so, I don't have the appetite for risk to like run my own. I wouldn't want to be number one and the only one on the line. I could be number two. I could be like a riding shotgun type co COO or something. But at least at this point in my life, I've I've never wanted to run my own company.
0: Well, you got politics on both sides of that question. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's a fairly valid point. (laughs) All right. At one point you were going to be an FBI agent. I need to hear this story.
1: Yeah. uh, And disqualified for a really random reason Uh, not random i I guess there was merit to it um so the story goes like this i was finding myself i guess you would say um post-graduation undergrad post mba my first job out of college was managing a target store which i just decided wasn't for me nothing against target nothing against the role like i really enjoyed it logistics and operations were interesting retail was cool but i was 22 and i'm like i don't want to spend every other weekend and every thursday closing the store missing out on time with friends when my friends are at bars watching college sports or whatever it like just the, the lifestyle and the schedule wasn't for me at that age um and i did a little soul searching and i guess i'd always had sort of a want to serve the country. I enjoy law enforcement. I was kind of fascinated by it. I was really enamored with the idea of having like a blacked out Impala with the credentials that you could flash anywhere and park anywhere. I was living in Chicago at the time. Parkings, you know, that would have been worth it in and of itself. I'll make the abridged story, the version of the story if I could, but um, it's a really long process and you don't hear very much. Like the Department of Justice does not communicate frequently or clearly. Um, You submit... An application and typically they look for people with hardened skills they look for lawyers they look for accountants they look for computer science language or uh, math specialists for counterterrorism, white-collar crime whatever it may be previous law enforcement experience military services valued so on and so forth and then they have a category that is it's basically a catch-all for if you don't have one of these backgrounds you can apply if you have a master's degree in two years work experience or, you know, a regular undergraduate degree in six years of experience, so on and so forth. So I applied for that role. In the meantime, they send you all the physical things you're supposed to do. You have to be able to do so many push-ups, sit-ups, uh, mile and a half run and pull-ups. And you have to be able to score at least one point in all four of those categories up to a total of 10 points. So, you know, I'm sending in my application. I'm getting myself in physical shape hear nothing, hear nothing, hear nothing, like six months passes. And I get a letter back from Washington that says, your exam date is this day. Show up, be on time. There's no alternative options. There's no like, take it another day if this doesn't work for you. It's just be there or don't. Um, So I showed up and there was a lot of folks significantly older than me. I was 23 and um, lawyers and accountants and cops and lots of people in the room. You take a standardized test um, you're escorted by an armed FBI agent into the FBI office. you take a test that's kind of behaviorally scored of what would you do in this situation and they give you you know a scenario and four options maybe five multiple choice. None of the answers are obviously wrong. Some of them seem more correct than others, but really it's a behavioral test on consistency, I think more than anything of you know they'll give you different flavors of the same question i think they're looking for consistent responses in how your mind works and so on feel okay about that test but not great because there's no right or wrong it's just you know is is your line of thinking aligned with how we would like our agents to behave in the field and they said we'll be in touch basically we don't know when but we'll be in touch at some point so another five months passes give or take and i get invited back for phase two um, there's a prep for phase two normally phase two is panel interview you submit yourself assessed physical scores um background checks talking to neighbors elementary school teachers friends family classmates everything but i get brought into a room with about six other people and they preface with hey congratulations on making it this far Um, at the chicago office of the fbi field we're really proud that we have the highest success rate of once you're in this room, there's about an 80% chance that you'll be in Quantico for field basic training from this point forward. But before we get to that point, we need to let you know how this process can work. You're going to submit your background. We've already started it. You're going to answer some questions. We're going to do a psychological evaluation. We're going to send you on a polygraph. We have to make sure that you didn't cross any of the lines in terms of narcotics violations or felonies on your record or, you know, anything that you weren't honest and disclosed earlier in the process, so on and so forth. If you fail the polygraph, you are permanently prohibited from working for the department of justice. So don't try and hide something. If you think you can beat the polygraph, go for it. But again, you know, if, if you don't make it through, like you're just done forever. If you did something bad and there's usually a waiting period for certain things, there's like a 10 year cooling off period from, um, any, any types of these infractions, uh, you can reapply at that time. So they give you a bunch of just off the wall examples of way people's ways that people have been DQ'd out and, you know, drugs are most common. You cannot have smoked weed anytime in the last three years and not more than 10 times ever. You can't have used any other drug. Um, and then they start listing off examples of like, you know, you can't, You cannot have used uh, whipped cream canisters or keyboard cleaner to like Huffman get high. You can't be sniffing glue. You can't be doing this and that and the other and just like completely left field crazy stuff. And I left that meeting thinking, you know, really glad to have been a straight edge kid my whole life. Like I got made fun of. Maybe I could have had more fun in college, but like no issues. This is not a problem for me. And I remember where I was on Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, driving back home to my apartment when like the light bulb went off and I had to call my recruiting agent. And I said, hey, maybe this is why you do these sessions, but like something just popped into my mind. Like all of our generation, I've kind of like self-diagnosed ADD or ADHD. And when I was getting ready to apply for college, I got one pill of Adderall from a friend that I worked with to take the SAT. I didn't pay for it. It wasn't a transaction per se. Like I didn't feel like I was buying drugs, but it wasn't prescribed to me. So I called her and I explained the situation. I said, I took one pill ever that was not prescribed to me. I didn't buy it. Um, it was, you know, to really hone in on a standardized test. How do we play this from here? And she said, you know, I've never had this question come up before. I'll get back in touch with you. And another six weeks passes. And I got a letter from Washington, D.C. that says your application has been put on hold. You've effectively paused the process yourself uh, because they deemed that one pill of Adderall, whether prescribed or not, was the same as if I'd been taking Oxycontin or Vicodin or something else for fun or for recreation. Uh, so I was effectively narcotics violated out of the FBI application process because they brought me into a meeting to tell me all these wild examples of like ways that people have been DQ'd. And that moment had not entered my mind in five years before that. Like I'd totally forgotten that it happened until we sat down and had that story. So because of that, I didn't wind up working for the DOJ and found a different career path, which is how we
0: know each other. (laughs) I guess I'm grateful for the Adderall because I would not have known you without it, but that was over five years gap, right? yeah yeah it was about six at
1: that point yeah
0: wow talk about being black and white on their rules that is wild
1: i couldn't argue with it it was just it was a different you know to have sunk that much time into the process and starting to have aspirations and being encouraged by it a little deflating but you know no regrets life has turned out great it's just that path wasn't meant for me at that time and they said hey you can reapply right like you can reopen this the day after you took that pill 10 years ago, like you can reapply. We'd be happy to have you. But four years later, I was already on a different track. So here
0: we are. <laughs> wow, man. Thank you for telling that story. That's super interesting. I have known you for a while now, and I had no idea that that happened in your life. I'm going to challenge you with two questions here that I ask every guest. And I know you're an, a listener of Build With Clay, so you know the questions that are coming. How would you define your why or your purpose in life?
1: Uh, I thought about this because I knew the question was coming. Uh, It is twofold. I'll try and be succinct because I know I'm a little bit uh, verbose in other areas. So number one, caring for, protecting, and providing for those that I love. Number two, serving others, particularly those less fortunate than me. And how would you define a growth mindset? I think the... The thing that I really latch on to is the notion of getting comfortable being uncomfortable. I try to say yes to things and I didn't always do that. I don't really like things that I'm not good at. Um, but I kind of made a commitment. I'm not into like new year's resolutions. Cause I think you can just decide to improve at any point. You don't need to wait for the turn of the calendar and, everybody always asks like, what's your new year's resolution? I'm like, I don't have one. Like if I need to diet or start working out more, do what I like, just start that today. Don't wait for January 1st. But, um, in order to have a response to that question, I said, I'm going to learn a new skill every year. And it might be something I'm, I suck at at first. And it might be something I suck at forever, but I'm going to stretch my boundaries a little bit. Like I'm, I'm going to try and learn new things. So for example, um, Learned how to road, ride a motorcycle, got a motorcycle license. Uh, started dusting off my Spanish language from 15 years ago to try and get better. Still not fluent, but you know, I took a trip to Spain this year and I was passable. Right, like I can I can get by. Verb conjugation is not so good. I learned how to cook Indian food, um, which is a you know a cuisine that I really enjoy, but was super intimidated to make. So, I think the short answer is. Ooh, actually, the good one is I learned how to ski after the age of 30, which I wouldn't recommend to folks. Friends used to ask me to go skiing in high school and I was like 16 or 17. I was like, it's way too late. It's too late to learn. Like you guys were all doing this when you were six or seven years old. Like I'm almost 18, like way too late. And I realized that was very short sighted. So. I think I was 31, I went out for my first ski run and had a buddy helping me put on my boots and stuff and, you know, went and took the Never Have I Ever class. And I will say that it is a ton of fun. It is also much more uh, consequential to fall at age 30 versus age 18. So if anybody wants to take up skiing, do it younger, not later. What's on the docket for 2023? You know, that's a great question. Um, I don't know yet. But as we record on November 29th, I will commit to get you an answer before, the, before January 1st comes.
0: <laughs> I look forward to it. I also look forward to trying some of that Indian cuisine at some point.
1: Spices are hard to find, but it's actually not too hard to make.
0: Okay. I like it. Yeah, we're, we're getting more ambitious with our, our cooking lately and trying new things. So we haven't gone the route of Indian food because I'm still acquiring, I think, the taste a little bit, but I know I'm, I don't eat like chicken or beef. So Indian food has a lot of, you know, vegetarian or pescatarian forward things. And so that's something that I feel like I need to have in my diet at some point and like kind of learn to love.
1: Yeah. I was pretty averse for a long time. Maybe as a symptom of growing up outside of Toledo, Ohio, like I just wasn't exposed to a lot of you know, different cultures, cuisines. Um, My parents infamously had like very bland palates. And to me, fish growing up was frozen fish sticks. And I was like, I don't like fish. Great thing about living in bigger cities is you get exposed to a lot of different things. And turns out, not only do I like fish, I love fish and I love Asian cuisine, which neither of my parents would eat. There's a lot of great food in the world. You just have to be open to try it. I guess that maybe gets back to your original question of like, I learned a lot about myself after moving out of Ohio, which is there's so much more of the world to see and do and experience. It was you or someone else who said, "If you haven't traveled the world, you've only read one chapter of the book." I heard it either on your podcast from a guest or from you.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that was from a guest, and it it's so true. It's amazing how it just broadens your horizons and how much appreciation you can have for others and other cultures and everything. But it, it, a lot of it takes the experience of getting out of whatever your border is today, city, town, state, country, uh, been lucky to be able to travel to some different countries across the world and haven't been to a ton, but many on the list. And it's amazing what you learn about people and you just realize everyone's human. Everyone has their thing, but they all have, you know, unique things that they bring to the world. You mentioned your parents, what? What did your parents do for a living? How did that influence who you are today?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So my parents are great. Let me, let me lay that as a baseline statement. You always precede that when you're about to say something kind of goofy about them, right? But, uh, my parents are terrific, like highest. Integrity of character people I've ever met and just the kindest people could not be more different and we'll probably get into that. But my dad worked for UPS for 35 years and started when he was 20. Uh, because of that, it took him seven years to finish a four-year program at the Ohio State University. So he kind of took the Van Wilder approach of staying in school as long as possible, but partially because he was working full time. So I would say he did everything but drive a truck for UPS. He was a call center rep, call center manager, loss prevention agent, air manager, driver trainer, but never a driver. Um, And he, at the time, UPS offered a pension still if you were 35 years in and 55 years old. And he hit both of those milestones in 05, took a couple years off watching the History Channel from his recliner. And I said, hey, it's not how I would do retirement, but you've earned it. Whatever makes you happy. Eventually got a little restless and got a job as a dealer trade driver because he loved being on the road and just, you know, shipping one new car for another new car at a different dealer like and getting paid minimum wage to do it i think just like being on the road and, and having you know a purpose for a while so i think what i learned from him above all was resilience and tenacity because at a couple of points in his 35 years um Union workers went on strike right in about 94, 95. So, for the first time in his career, like my dad had to throw on the brown suit and say, Well, Teamsters are on strike. So, like, everybody's pitching in to do everything, even though I'm in middle management. Like, we're all shipping packages later in his career. I think after they'd gone public, the new UPS stakeholders said, Wow, pension's really expensive to pay all these people who've been here for 35 years. Like, let's see if we can get them to bow out early. And they gave him the worst assignments for his last four years which included driving two hours a day commuting back and forth starting his day at 2 p.m getting home at 2 or 3 a.m being like a driver assistant during fourth quarter crunch christmas time jumping on and off trucks like not something that someone who's 54 55 overweight and has never been in a truck should be doing but he was like nope I'm making it like I have my exit date in mind. I'm going to make it. There's nothing they can do to deter me. I'm getting what I was owed, what I believed in this entire time. And just his commitment to the job, as silly as it sounds, like when he was an air manager in Toledo, the biggest airport nearby was Detroit. And sometimes on weekends, as a kid, he would take me into the hub, the sorting facility, And if like four packages got left behind on a conveyor belt that didn't make it to the truck that went to the airport to get on the plane to go somewhere else, we'd hop in the car and drive to Detroit airport to make sure four packages got on that plane. And I loved it, whatever it was time with my dad. But I also like, what are we doing this for? And he said, look, we made a commitment to our customer. It was second day air. We said it would be there Monday. If it doesn't make the plane on Saturday, it won't be. I don't know if this is cotton balls or somebody's really vital medication, but that's not my call to make. We're going to get the packages there when we promise. So like, you know, just kind of things that seem silly or trivial to others. My dad lived it and breathed it for 35 years. So not glamorous, not fancy, but holy cow, did he have a work ethic? I think I learned a lot from that. Sounds like Uh, it. My mom, traditional... Uh, traditional maybe not a good word, um, of the age where women working outside the house was not common. So both my parents are now in their seventies and she didn't work until my parents got divorced. And I would say the same thing about my mom. Like she was a hustler, right? Like semi contentious divorce had never earned an income, had never even finished her degree. She was on her way to getting a teacher certification. When she dropped out, they got married at 21, never finished her schooling. And by the time she was made to go back into the workforce, like you couldn't teach in the state of Ohio without either a certificate or a master's degree, neither of what she had. So she was a barista. She was a uh, pharmacy assistant. She was a receptionist at a chiropractic office, all while going to school to get her certifications that she needed to become a teacher, like she'd always sort of aspired to be. True hustler, right? Like, just. I had two very different upbringings kind of at the age of nine where dad's job was stable, but he worked a ton, wasn't around a lot. Mom was doing everything she could to provide for me and my sister. We split time equally. Neither of my parents were bad. So the courts just kind of said, you know, you can go spend time with whichever parent you want, whenever you want. But um, two very different households of, you know, my dad's a minimalist and very, you know, fiscally responsible. Uh, My mom was just broke. I remember the times when answering machines were a thing and we were not picking up phone calls because she didn't have the money to pay the bills to, you know, it was either put food on the table or pay for one of the utilities. Um, so I think for both of those reasons, it was a little bit, uh, it gave me perspective that I think a lot of people maybe don't get coming from where I came from
0: at age nine, 10, 11. Yeah. those are formative years. And so you get resiliency and tenacity from your dad, you get hustle from your mom and you get the perspective of just being in that kind of unique circumstance at such a formidable age. Could you expand on how this upbringing influenced you? I felt different.
1: Like I grew up in one of the waspiest suburbs that you can imagine. No diversity, generally upper middle class. Um, very few parents were divorced it was just it was a young you know kind of flourishing suburb town um and up until fourth grade like i knew the one kid in my elementary school whose parents were divorced so as soon as i became the second like i felt different right and tons of people go through divorce like i'm I'm not alone right but like i was unique at that time in that place i was popular i had friends right i was a bright enough kid i was pretty athletic for you know all the way through junior high anyway and then i met high school and i wasn't as good as everybody else but you know in general i had a really blessed and fortunate and you would say privileged upbringing um but there were you know there was the external what people saw and there was what was going on behind closed doors and um you know the image you portrayed of the world even before social media existed like had to put on a clean face, everything's cool, smiling, happy when, you know, you've got questions and you've got uncertainty and you've got instability. Um, I think just learning to kind of manage that when you're still in a formative age where like what people think about you matters so much to you, like it's the core of your existence. Are you wearing the right clothes? Are you hanging out with the right people? Can you catch a football? Like, Stuff that no one cares about when you're an adult matters a lot back then. So I think all that. Oh, kind of I, I
0: care if my friends can catch a football. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> it's your selection process, actually. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I I'd certainly see your point. And so, man, that's, I mean, that yeah, that had to have a huge influence on you. And like, the perspective, I think, is interesting because. Everyone has their own unique perspective. Every single person based on their own individual experiences. Every single person has a unique perspective. Yours is very unique, especially for where you grew up. How has that perspective helped you? There's a detail I should disclose
1: before I answer that question. It kind of rounds out the story. I, I say I have a unique upbringing for somebody from, you know, the suburbs of Toledo, Ohio, where I grew up, uh, my parents split when I was in like fourth grade and in eighth grade, I found out why punchline up front. When I was a junior in high school, both of my parents were dating women named Cheryl. So my mom had come out to my sister and I, and a small, very small community of people, close friends and associates, which added another layer of complexity to that recipe that I just unpacked. Right. So picture mid to late nineties in suburban Toledo, Ohio, being out, especially out as a parent, there's not a huge population around that. So it was something that I was definitely shy about, definitely embarrassed about, isn't something that I owned up to for a long time. didn't disclose to my friends didn't talk about it didn't want people to know that part of my life right that we were struggling in certain areas poor half of the time and I had a mom who was just weird or different or you know certainly part of a community that wasn't much of a community at the time Um, I think we've made great strides in the last 25 years for the record and in the spaces around equal rights and inclusivity and everything else that goes along with that but in the 90s like that just didn't exist um so I think I learned a lot and it was really just sort of it was myself growing into a point of confidence in myself and also priorities and caring and realizing that like perception of everybody else doesn't matter right like you take care of the people that you care about And if people want to dislike or say nasty things about, or take a negative view of my mom, I don't care. Your opinion doesn't matter to me. She's terrific. She's the kindest person you'll ever meet in your entire life. And she is different, but I think the perspective came from a combination of things, which is very few people, again, coming from the place that I came from, were exposed to so much at such a young age. And I think it kind of gave me, begrudgingly for a while, more perspective and more appreciation for people who have different opinions and people who have different characteristics and people who have different gods and different partners and different whatever, right? I think I I grew to evaluate sort of the totality of the person and the character of that person over time more and more. Like it's something I'm still working on today. I think all of us are. Um, but I I had maybe an accelerated path because of that, because that was certainly
0: impactful for lack of a better word. You had an accelerated path, but you chose to take one pathway. You chose the pathway of I'm going to take this and care for my family as much as possible and, and hone my character and make this make me stronger. When I think you could have taken a different pathway of "woe is me," everything in my life sucks. My parents are divorced. My mom doesn't have any money. My mom's weird. What whatever, and been a ten year old, twelve year old, thirteen year old that just everything is the worst. The world's against you, and turned a completely different way. I trust that you are, but you should be like crazy proud of how you handled that as an evolving human in. What already is one of the toughest parts of life is going through puberty and middle school and high school and to have all of that surrounding you. I mean, it. I appreciate you sharing it because I've known you for a long time and I know that, I know how kind you are. I know how understanding you are of any situation, of any person, and it's neat to hear the backstory as to why you are the way that you are.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate that, first of all. But I think the other side of that coin is the more we normalize conversations around differing opinions on sexuality, gender, race, religion, whatever else, what, you know, what I found over time is my experience wasn't that uncommon. Like it's pretty unique to have both. It's pretty unique. I I was fortunate to be born. If you look at it that way. Right. My parents were married for 23 years before they got divorced and my mom came out. I'm like, luckily I got in, you know, before the whistle blew and, uh, I'm here today. So that's one thing to be thankful for. But the other thing is like, as you share the stories and as people become more comfortable being their true, authentic and whole selves, You learn more and more people went through that, like still a, still a small percentage are probably in my exact shoes on that, but I'm not the only one. And the more you talk about it, you have people that dealt with divorce, dealt with same-sex partnerships, dealt with whatever in their close family and their siblings, aunts, uncles, parents, who knows, it could be anything. And I was fortunate too, to have perspective of, I went to high school with people who came from way worse backgrounds than me. We're dealing with far more burdens and everybody's got a cross to bear, I guess, as I say, like you don't know what someone's going through. We had retreats at my school, Kairos, for any Jesuit high school folks, shout out. Um, You kind of share stories and hear and understand more about people. And what I learned on retreats is everybody's got something. And a lot of people have more than you ever conceived of, right? Like a lot of people are hiding things. And not because they necessarily want or even felt compelled to hide it, but just because, look, these are my problems. I don't need to make them yours. And it's not the first thing I want you to know about me or think about me, because whatever, it's it's internal or it's family or it's whatever it is. But I think the more that I talked about it, the more I found commonality and community in it. And I think that's something that
0: we could all use more of <laughs> people like you talking about it makes other people comfortable talking about their stuff, which then just creates a community of, of openness of, Hey, we all got a lot going on. Everyone's going through something, just like you said. And we just, we never know. Like we, I always use the example, like you get cut off, like you're, you're driving and you get cut off by someone they could be having the worst day of their life they could be in their own head had no idea you were even there they could be rushing to the hospital they could be who knows or they could just be a jerk i mean right. all, all things are possible but if we i think we err on the side of they're a jerk versus hey they must just have something bad going on in their life and just you know in their own world and not paying attention or rushing to get somewhere because their sisters in the hospital whatever so i think that's that's wise and it and it brings back my To the forefront of my mind, gosh, I can't remember the book. I feel like it's the seven habits of highly effective people around seeking to understand prior to seeking to be understood. And we as a society, myself included, often get that mixed up. We want to be understood as to who we are versus trying to understand another person, their situation, what they got going on, and trying to learn about Other cultures, other people, other things, you know, whatever the hot topic of the day is. But it's hard because everyone, especially around sexuality, around religion, around, I mean, shoot, sports, like we all have very strong opinions. We seek to be understood versus trying to understand how another person, another human being feels or what their experience has been and why they feel a certain way. Yeah. And your point on,
1: I still have work to do in the road rage area. I'm a really polite driver. I try and accommodate people. I let them turn in front of me and so on. But as soon as anybody does anything stupid, like I'm heated.
0: <laughs> and- yeah. That, that switch flips for me. Cause I, I try to be I'm better, getting better about not having hurry in my life. And I often felt hurry behind the wheel. So I've been trying to be better about not feeling as much hurry. But if someone's sitting in a, a lane where it's like yield, right? Like, and, and the lane keeps going, you know, it's one of those where you're merging on and you're the only one that can have the lane. And, <laughs> and they're just like, com- came to a complete stop. And there's like 20 lines of cars. I'm like, come on, a little bit of awareness here. Come on. <laughs> I, I can't get beyond the the stupidity aspect of it, but Hey, I got to eat my own words and realize, Hey, they may just have something else going on in their life.
1: Yeah, you're right. If there's ever a good time to exercise patience, it's when you're driving two tons of steel and you're at your most dangerous, arguably.
0: Yes, and half the time I've got a kid, if not all three kids (laughs) behind me, which I should be taking even more caution. But hey, life's all about improving and getting better. And so that's one area where it sounds like both of us could get a little bit better. Well, your journey is super interesting and I love the perspective that you have, Matt. Any other like, commentary on like the values that got instilled in you, how they manifest in your life today? Like what, what have we missed in terms of your journey? I'll
1: close the story the way I started it. Both of my parents are fantastic people and I couldn't be more proud of both of them for different reasons. My dad was miffed, understandably, right? By 23 years of marriage, divorce, followed by news that my mom was then looking into female partners. Like I would just feel like I got dealt a bad hand in life. And I think he did for a while. Fast forward present day. I think they're closer friends today than they ever have been. And they went to high school together, right? Like they were kind of high school sweethearts and so on. So to see somebody as conservatively oriented as my dad make that full turn and rotate back to where they are today, I think is super honorable. It was a journey for him. It was a journey for us. But I think what was always constant was neither my sister nor I ever doubted the care and love that either and both of our parents had for us. Like that was always baseline, right? So if I go back to the what's my why, like that's what I took away from it is there's nothing more important than family. And I'm not somebody who talks to my family very often. You know, we don't talk weekly or even, Sometimes not even monthly, but there's no question about we would all lay down in traffic for one another, right? Like, clearly, I would do anything for either my parents, my sister, uncles, so on and so forth. Um, Pretty small, like my entire family is about eight people that I'm blood related to. So it's easy and it's a close knit group. But I think that's that's the takeaway and that's the full circle on that story. Is like stuff gets thrown at you, you deal with it, you adapt, hopefully move forward stronger and. I think that's kind of the foundation that I, that's the lens that I
0: view life from at this point. And you mentioned your why. So the first part of your why was about your family. The second part was about doing things for others, especially others who are less fortunate than you are. This can manifest itself in a ton of different ways. So how do you demonstrate giving back to others in your life?
1: I have found that my most valuable resource is time. And I think that's something that you talk about a lot as well. Time and attention to be specific. And when I started in business school and they told me that like the tower that Loyal is business school in was yet unnamed, I had aspirations like I'm going to put my name on that building. Like I'm going to get rich and I'm going to be, you know, 25 East Pearson will become Brooks Hall or whatever. I've come to terms with the fact that not only is that not going to happen, it's not something I want like I don't really care about fame or popularity or attention and I certainly don't need my name on a building but what I do care about is helping people who were who are where I was I love helping students I love helping people who are finding their way making a transition from one industry to another like wherever I can lend skills experience and perspective I love doing that like I love you know I, I feel like Jen and I, my wife are are pretty successful. We're on the right track. We're not retiring next year by any stretch of the imagination, but like we're on a good path. We've got great jobs, with great companies. We've got great friends, great family. Like life is pretty good. And I want to reach back and help anybody else who's looking to improve themselves, whether that's in career, whether that's in coaching, whether that's in, you know, health and empathy and mentality and all those things. So short answer to your question i love coaching i do a little volunteer baseball coaching um, i've done that in just about every city i've lived in uh, volunteer organizations very passionate about one in particular called back on my feet which is uh, we can go more into this but it's taking care of homeless in certain cities they've got several chapters around the country and it's um, getting up with a purpose getting up three days a week five forty-five monday wednesday friday to go for a run And going for a run could really mean a jog, or it could be a fast walk. Um, and you don't have to be a runner. You don't have to have experience, but you have to be committed to a schedule and a purpose and trying to get better. And one of the first questions they ask you at back on my feet orientation is when's the last time you hugged a homeless person? Like most people, my answer was never like I've never hugged a homeless person, at least that I can recall, unless it was planted on me, you know, (laughs) against my wishes. And they build a community around running for purpose, right? Like volunteers get out to do it and partner with. So in Chicago, for example, there's three different houses. One is a YMCA, one is a women's shelter, and one is for formerly incarcerated folks. And Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 545, pick your location. You're out there to do one mile, three miles, five miles, whatever it is at a pace of your choosing. And with 90% attendance back on my feet, members who are experiencing homelessness start to get access to job interview and career preparation and financial education and health. And like, how do we get you on a path to sustainability and being independent, being able to pay rent for yourself, getting a job? Lots of great corporate sponsors, Marriott, Accenture and others are involved. But the lifeblood of the organization is the people. And, you know, that really kind of opened my eyes to not only are most people good, but people who are experiencing homelessness don't choose it. They wind up there for a variety of factors. Sometimes it's of their own doing, certainly. Sometimes people get into bad habits, make bad decisions, hang out with the wrong crowd. Um, A lot of people are there for reasons completely out of their control and would love nothing more than the opportunity to work earnestly and get back on their feet, as the cliche is. So I was involved with that organization when I lived in Chicago. I don't have a chapter in Cleveland where I live today. I've been lobbying for it for some time, um, but I, I try to find ways to engage, interact with, and help those less fortunate than me because I still live downtown. I still live in an urban area. I come across folks who need a hand almost every day. And I try to treat them like people is kind of the short answer. Like the number of conversations I have with folks who are asking for something, need help or whatever, who say, hey, thanks for at least listening to me. You're the first person who acknowledged my humanity today and and talked to me like a person and not just somebody on a sidewalk with a sign. Few examples where like it's made my day way more than it made theirs just to have that type of
0: reach and interaction with somebody. I want to get into this because you and I broached this subject about a month ago and you and I were talking and I was super intrigued by this because I don't live in a downtown area, but I live in an area that has homeless people and that you occasionally walk by. And especially if you're going downtown, of course, you're going to see a lot more. You talked about being a coach. I want you to coach me on the best way to interact with a homeless person because I don't feel like I know what that is.
1: Let me preface with, I don't think there's a right answer. I think there's a right answer for you and for me and for anybody independently. Number one, you want to feel safe, right? Because having said everything I said about, you know, most homeless folks don't choose it, there is an element of unknown and risk that you're taking by even entering that situation. So, you know, rule number one, be safe, feel safe, make sure that you've got an out if things go a little wild number two for me i ask them their name one observation is the homeless communities and cities operate differently like in chicago folks are friendly some of them have their little gig they're known for being the streetwise person selling the magazines for a dollar like it's just their hey happy thursday right If anybody works in ogilvy in chicago they'll know the happy thursday guy in new york people sit silently with markers scrawled on cardboard boxes explaining the situation in Cleveland, people approach me because there's just not as much pedestrian traffic. They got to take every shot they can. I usually start with name and, and sometimes they do too, right? Like sometimes they'll say, hey, I'm Raymond and here's a little bit of backstory. Um, but I usually start with that because I think that folks at the very least appreciate the acknowledgement of you're not just a passerby. You're not somebody that I inconveniently stumbled upon on my walk to wherever. I think that goes a long way understanding what they need, if they need anything, right? Like several times your interactions may not have an ask at the end. Lots of times they do. I need a bus pass. I need a sandwich. I'm just trying to get something to eat. There's a guy on my daily dog walk routine that I've known for about two years at this point has never asked me for anything outside help setting a digital watch that he found. He sits outside the doggy daycare where we take our little pup Murphy And about this time last year, it was like the week before Thanksgiving. And I said, hey, man, like, do you have somewhere to go for a meal? You know, do you want me to bring you something? He said, no, the shelter, you know, down the street does a nice job, nice hot meal, so on and so forth. And I said, I don't know your name. I've been walking by it for a few weeks at this point. Like, I'm Matt. He said, I'm Ron. And now I've been seeing Ron three or four times a week, every week for the last year. And... I know he got a little bit of a job because he got new shoes one day and he had an extra pair of shoes in his bag with him, but like still wasn't enough to pay rent because he's still on the streets. But one day he had a Seiko watch and he said, hey, do you have any idea how to set this? (laughs) Because I found it, it works, the battery is charged, but like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And about a week after that, he's like, there's an alarm that goes off like at 2 a.m. every night. Do you know how to turn that off? So like stuff like that, right? Like you can have very genuine kind of funny humbling experiences with I know nothing about Ron other than he has trade skills. He used to have a job. He used to have a house. I think his wife passed away. Details are unclear, but like having a conversation with him as a human is answer number one. Um, And the tricky thing about that is a lot of them will get to the ask quickly if there is one and you kind of need to discern and decide on the spot do I believe the backstory? Is it something that's worth my time and investment? And I'll try and be more succinct here, but I think the, I've tried two things, neither of them I loved. One year I decided I was going to give a dollar to everybody who asked for it. I said, what what could that number possibly be? 162 was the answer. I gave away $162 in one calendar year. Whether it was used for good or for evil, I don't know. I don't care, but like that was kind of my thing. And... I felt like I was buying myself out of conversations at that point. So I didn't really like that approach. Then I started carrying sandwiches. Like we would buy extra deli meat, extra bread, and I would keep a sandwich and sometimes little baggies of dog food. You know, if there was ever a person with their dog, I would want to be able to give something to both. And if you don't have a sandwich with you, if you don't have leftovers or whatever it is, sometimes I would walk into CBS or Walgreens and buy them a sandwich. They say, hey, I'm just trying to get something to eat. I would rather get you something to eat than give you two or five dollars and let you make the decision. Happy to provide you sustenance, not so happy if you go buy a 40 in a brown bag, right? So I think you can control the way that you give, but my, my first and most authentic response is talk to them, listen to them, ask them their name, and so many people are just so appreciative. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard, hey, thanks for hearing me out, even if you can't help, like you're the first person to treat me like a person today. that stings, man. Like that just pulls at my heartstrings. Like how many people walked by, didn't look your way, were afraid to look your way, didn't even want to acknowledge your existence. Like you're a person, you had a family, maybe you still have a family. To the earlier point of like, we just don't know what folks are dealing with. I try to view it through that lens of thinking sympathy first.
0: Yeah. Go seek to understand why they're in the position they are. And I, I mean, It's interesting because you're talking about, you know, make sure you're safe and, uh, you know, you you may find yourself in an interesting situation at some point, but then I kind of zoom out and I think about that as just general human interaction as (laughs) you're, I mean, at some point you're going to run into someone at some point that's just like, you know, unlucky that they're having that really bad day or they're whatever, for whatever reason, you're just caught in the middle of something and it doesn't have to be that they're homeless it's just the act of being a human yeah well i'll give you one this is
1: one it's an example i really like but it was also like it started off a little iffy i was in austin for a business meeting i've always treated expense policy of like spend your money as if it's your own. So I could have just parked my rental car in the hotel valet for 28 bucks a night, but there was an open parking meter across the street from the Hilton in downtown Austin. And I was like, I'm going to go pay four bucks to park overnight instead of 24 bucks or whatever it is. And it was one of the digital ones where you got to enter the license plate and pick the time. And it's describing like, you have to pay up until this time, but then you're free till not like whatever. Like I was just struggling. Technology was still new ish at the time. And somebody that I didn't see because I was so focused on the machine came up and tapped me on the shoulder. It's dark. It's 8 PM. And it was like, sir, sorry to bother you. I'm like, Holy cow. Startled me. Right? Like didn't see you came off my left flank, just didn't understand. And the guy says to me, Hey, I need 85 cents to catch a bus. Is there any way you can help me? And I knew that I had like a loose $5 bill in my pocket. I bought a sandwich earlier in the day and it was just like, not even in my wallet, just loose in my pocket, pulled it out handed it to him. Like, here you go, man. Good luck. Still trying to get my parking situation figured out. He pauses in that spot and says, this is way more than I need. Do you want me to go inside and make change for you? And I was just, I was awestruck, right? Of like, normally you give somebody five bucks, take the money and run. It demonstrated to me that some people, when they say, hey, I need a buck for bus fare, train fare, whatever it is. I think a lot of people give that dollar to buy themselves out of the conversation knowing that they may or may not use it for bus fare, train fare. Like this guy genuinely just needed to get on the bus to go, you know, he was going to walk into the hotel that I was about to check into to go get me my $4.15 back. I'm like, no, you need it more than I do. I didn't say this to him, but I'm thinking like, I'm not going to miss this extra four bucks. Go get yourself a sandwich or something else. And he apologized for coming up behind me in the dark and all this. It was just one of those like, I went from very on edge to it absolutely made my day to be like, wow, you genuinely needed 85 cents and I overkilled it. And you were so grateful you were going to go get me change back. Like, no, please, please spend it on yourself. Right. Whatever that means.
0: <laughs> it's awesome. Man. It just proves, I mean, everyone's just human. Everyone's got their thing going on. It seems to be a theme of today's episode and, <laughs> and seeking and like going back to seeking to understand, what is going on in someone's life. And I'll bring one other theme into play that gets a lot of play here on the podcast because I talk about it a lot, but it's about being in a hurry. And I think that because we are in such a hurry to get things done, if we're walking downtown, we most likely have a destination in mind. We're going to eat food. We're going to meet someone. We're trying to get to our car and we're typically in a hurry. Therefore, you know, where are we going to stack rank the things that we're going to stop for a homeless person is probably very low, if not the lowest on that list. And so if we eliminate hurry in our life or if we eliminate hurry in parts of our life, maybe that gives a little more time for that type of interaction to happen. I mean, that's 30 seconds of an interaction that could make someone's day. So you got my commitment, Matt, like the... It seems silly to coach me on how to have a conversation with another human, but uh, I love to start with the name. I think that's wonderful. I, there's a, oh, there's a quote of that a person's name is the sweetest thing to that person's ear. It's the, it's the best word in the English language to them or in whatever language they speak. And so if you go and learn their name and you say it in conversation once or twice, it's just, that's probably something that doesn't happen very frequently for them to your point earlier. And two, it's, it's always nice to hear your name. Yeah, I I agree. And
1: he's never said it to me, but my friend Ron that sits outside the doggy daycare center, like, I think it kind of makes his day for me and Murphy my little black lab to walk by and say, morning, Ron, how are you? Murphy goes over and sniffs him and licks him and he gets his pets and all that stuff. I I don't know what else he looks forward to and I don't mean to center it on me, but like it's a genuine connection and it's something that I'm grateful for that every day we interact, it grounds me. It humbles me. It makes me feel so fortunate for all that I have. And I think the other piece of advice for anybody, you know, as we're getting into the crux of winter, if anybody's looking for advice on how to interact, you don't need to give food. You don't need to give money. Um, socks, and old shoes and old boots and stuff like that are super important, especially in states where it gets cold in the winter. If you walk by somebody every day or every week or see them periodically, like they're incredibly grateful for extra layers because those are things that cost money, but are free to give away. Especially if you've got unmatched socks in your drawer, like I have plenty of people are not very discerning if it's just a way to keep warm. So (laughs) that's another easy way to give back a little bit.
0: Love that. Well, Matt, it's an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you and to hear the perspective that you have, where it comes from greatly appreciate you being open, vulnerable about sharing your family background and how that's lent a perspective that then gets you to live your why and your purpose about being there for your family, but giving back to others who are less fortunate and just grateful to have you in my life. Grateful for you listening and always providing me feedback on things that I'm doing in my life. And, um, just love having a person with your high character in my life. So I appreciate the time and we've built with Matt Brooks. Matt, thanks for being on. Loved it. Thanks for having me. Hey listener, it's clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the build with clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find build with clay on Instagram at build with clay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.